Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. There's rebellion in the wind. It will be crushed. Everything I've said is true. It's real. Just joining us. This is part three of the Rise of the Experts series. But really, when we named that, I don't think, not that we named it inappropriately, but it's so much bigger than just the expert, you know, yeah. the rise of the social contract, the rise yeah. of so many clandestine things um, mm-hmm. that are now coming to light. And um, I'm joined again by, of course, Bulletproof. Bulletproof Publishers, Dwayne Hayes, and for the first time in a long time, Andy Gerard. How's it going, Andy? Uh, doing well, man. Glad to be back. Thanks for having me. <clears throat> Always enjoy being on a panel with you guys and looking in, looking forward to talking about Zionism today. Yeah, this is going to be a big one. This is where we're getting in yes. pretty deep, and um, yeah. Dwayne has provided a lot of data and forensic evidence for. Mm-hmm. What has ha- what has happened over the course of many many decades, and it's yep. all been uh, coming to fruition, and it's a long time coming. And this mm-hmm. is this is a major piece this series. So please mm-hmm. go back and watch parts one and two. It's not only on YouTube, but on the podcast feed as well. So, but yeah, mm-hmm. whenever whenever we're ready, we can just dive right into part three. Sure. Dwayne, however okay. you want to introduce it. Yeah. So I think we should probably just quickly cover what we did in parts one and two just to sort of help people grasp how uh how influential louis brandeis was so in part one he's he's really considered the architect of the new freedom so he was the the most trusted personal advisor of woodrow wilson oh oh, it's freezing again yeah, that might happen a couple times. So Trans Bank Life Insurance <laughs> and is. about a hundred other things. Sorry? Yeah, you, you froze, froze up <laughs> for a second. Uh, yeah. Hopefully that won't keep happening. It only happened yeah. once last time and it was brief and early on. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, the last they're... two streams were pretty good. So I mean <clears throat> they're, trying to, they're trying to get us. <laughs> I routinely yeah. get issues. But, you know, generally it's at the beginning and then for whatever reason, everything smooths out. But I do have Internet issues here at home for whatever reason over the last year or so. I figured if they're trying to take us off the Internet at all, if we start getting those kind of vibes, we'll just switch Mm -hmm. over to mythology and um, dogman and all kind of mythological creatures that are like satanic and coming Mm -hmm. to get us or something. 
then will the algorithm will just push us to everyone in the alternative community. So <laughs> I should so, name it that way. We won't even name it Brandeis. We'll name it something right. like something fear porny. <laughs> yeah. Well, I could actually go on for quite a while talking about, you know, how much suppressions on our site and me personally, whenever I, I try to mention this guy. And I really do right. believe that this is the gate that is being kept. So, you know, everybody's trying to figure out who the gatekeepers are. It's pretty easy when you figure out the information that they're trying to keep. You don't have to worry about who it is anymore. So I don't know where I was cut off there, but he's the architect of new freedom. So he creates the administrative state, which is really the, the welfare state when you break it all down. And so he's he's hanging out with the father of the the welfare state, too. And so we went over that in part one, how he infiltrates the Wilson administration, creates the Federal Reserve Board, the Federal Trade Commission, Savings Bank, Life Insurance, and a and hundred other aspects to the administrative state. And so what this is, is what Lippmann called the Great Society, and he wanted it run by uh, intelligence bureaus. And in each in intelligence bureau, they'd be run by an expert. And this is how they wanted society to run. This was their idea to uh, world wars and material force of arms was an international uh, force of law and not just the United States and Western world, but the entire world to be run uh, by the scientific expert. And so, you know, we started researching all of this, got through part one, and then we realize that he's he's the coiner of the term scientific management. So when we talk about labor unions and the creation of labor unions, and you know there was major labor wars back in this time too, because people weren't really wanting to go back or, or to go in into factories and to work. They were happy on their homesteads or in their other lives prior to you know this international push. So. Got another freeze up. He'll be back in just a second. It seems like it's not too much of a delay. Hopefully. Unless they finally got us. I was thinking if there was a topic, <clears throat> it might be this one. Right? I mean, <laughs> given the, I didn't, I given didn't the put, climate. <clears throat> yeah, I, I didn't put um, Dwayne's like subtitle in the youtube title i just named it rise of the expert part three um but it's yeah the creation of israel american zionism uh Dwayne is dead in the water right now he's frozen this he's totally frozen up oh, and now he's gone so i think he's probably going to be coming back in he, yeah there he is here he is okay back wow. and more powerful <laughs> okay so i'm just gonna keep going i don't know where i got cut off there oh man well we can we can definitely it was very it was in like 30 seconds you you got cut off we were just Seriously. getting into it okay yeah, so it's rough. um i don't know what to say if it continues i'll just I know. keep trying to persevere and Absolutely. uh you can do what you can do there uh it could just be as my own internet connection sometimes it can be a little bit funky so more times than not um, it's that and not the cia so right <laughs> so i'm gonna share a screen and we're gonna get into this so let's do it for those that aren't familiar with some of this 
definitely go back and, and read part one and two. Do you guys see Brandeis part three, American Zionism and the making of Israel there? Yes, sir. Okay. We've made it that far. We got his face on the internet. That is one huge step. I love seeing him, you know, being talked about because it's nearly impossible to find anybody talking about him yet. Yeah. That's the weird part, man. I've been, I've been, uh, I've been mentioning him and talking about him, obviously promoting our series here, but at the same time, like the, a lot of times I'm just kind of getting like, like I'm getting responses as if I'm showing a dog, a magic trick or something like, huh? Like who, what, why Supreme court justice? Like, all right, whatever. Like, oh, yeah, well, okay, okay. Right. Like, well, you know, if you know, just on a basic level, that's why we started with one his uh infiltration of the US at um the three branches of the US government, the judicial, the uh, executive, and the legislative. So that's really, you know, he took over all three uh through being a lawyer and an attorney and a Supreme Court justice and then the personal advisor to Wilson. And he so, set the standard, yeah. Yeah, he's uh, he's very influential, and so it's quite a little twist that he does here. And at the same time, he does an about face about his 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 uh, background is the same time that Woodrow Wilson does his about face and goes to war. You know, the second election, he was he was elected largely on his promise that they weren't going to get into war in four months after they were. And so there's an about face there that is totally synchronized between Brandeis and Wilson and, and historians generally, especially the mainstreamers sit there confounded as to how this is possible, but you can easily see once you get into it, that it's all coordinated and it's coordinated by this guy. So, He's a non-practicing Jew who did not believe in religion. He became head of the American Zionist movement in his sixth decade. So he was just about 60 years old when he, he transformed. Uh, the Zionist movement from a moribund sideshow into a powerful component of American Jewish life. So Brandeis met with Woodrow Wilson for the very first time on August 28th, 1912 at Seagirt, New Jersey, to discuss Brandeis's reform ideas. So this is about three months before Wilson gets nominated, Brandeis comes aboard and starts running his campaign. And it's all under the new freedom. So Brandeis, and so what this means is Brandeis met both Wilson and De Haas in the same month, just prior to Wilson's election. So De Haas is really the guy that mainstream accounts will tell you inspired uh, Brandeis to Zionism. But as you'll see here, it, it, you know, he was influenced a long time before that. Right, but he really got active after he was meeting with De Haas. So that's in within the same two weeks, Brandeis meets for the first time Woodrow Wilson and Jacob De Haas. So his sudden interest in Zionism, according to the mainstream, was sparked by his first meeting uh, with Jacob De Haas. Uh, De Haas was, you know, a secretary to Theodore Herzl close personal advisor and friend and moves to Boston on his advice. De Haas does. And so he becomes the editor of the Boston Jewish advocate and the Boston Jewish Chronicle and um, inspires Brandeis with harrowing tales of both Lewis's Zionist uncle, Lewis Neftali Dembitz 
and Theodore Herzl. So Brandeis had long before been introduced to the Jewish problem. Uh, as we will show you, five years before de Haas, he's making a speech at the New Century Club in Boston commemorating the 250th anniversary of the Jewish, the first ever Jewish, Jewish settlement until what loyalty demands. So he's writing speeches long before this. Okay, so we're already breaking history right there. This is, you'd have to go outside the sort of milieu of the circle of official biographers that surround Brandeis like they do with Lippmann and everybody else. There's about five or six mm -hmm. that sit between themselves and contemplate the history of these, uh, these historic figures. And so they act as gatekeepers themselves because there's all kinds of incredible information in there that they just kind of, you know, glaze over at. Uh, right. Starting with the fact that this is, he's a Supreme court justice but he's a radical social reformer. You know, that's yeah. that's really what uh, the reasons behind his opposition. You know, that's why his confirmation took nearly six months is because not because of his Jewish background, but because he was a radical. These things were far more known then than they are now, certainly. And so. Uh, we've got a quote here from him, and this is when he was interviewed by De Haas before this uh, legendary meeting. So I don't know why they try to push that narrative when there's so much provenance showing that De Haas actually himself met Brandeis uh, long before that. And here's where Brandeis says in an interview with De Haas and the Jewish Chronicle that I have a great deal of sympathy with the Zionists. The movement is an exceedingly deserving one. These so-called dreamers are entitled to the respect and appreciation of the entire Jewish people. So he joins the Federation of American Zionism, FAS. And it's also here during this time while he was nearing his 60s that Brandeis changes his middle name in honor of his Zionist uncle mm. from David to Dembitz. And yeah, we have a prominent Frankist yeah. you know, being sympathetic to Zionism, which is mm -hmm. really problematic. And did we cover Especially this? With his, <laughs> his prominence in yeah a little bit yes well no the 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 aspect that his dad came to north america with a rothschild mm -hmm. agent we covered that in part one i believe right i believe so yeah okay yeah because yeah, that did. was a late you did yeah okay good thank that you was andy <laughs> it was a late piece of, it was a late artifact that i found and so we're Crucial busy researching one. that now, but it looks like he's a Rothschild agent from the beginning. This is, you know, cause his father comes over before Louis is even born. Right. So, and we know and this plan has been in, this plan has been uh, carried out long before. Yeah. Well, didn't we also say that uh, Louis's parents were also Frankis? Yeah. And his great grandfather, it's a long line. Of right. And of all believing that like Moshiach is coming basically. Well, I don't know if that's what it up. is backwards way i don't know but it's antinomial antinomial it's uh it's a um what do you what do you say i don't Frank know is, it's, it's a degenerate <laughs> it's not religion but it's, it's a an degenerate inversion. form of you know it's a movement against morals and ethics really we've yeah, covered absolutely. that already yeah and that's have. you know it's documented so um yeah, I didn't mean to take us down that little... <laughs> no, it's okay. That's okay. Okay. Uh, so, 
Brandeis on, on August 30th, 1914, becomes the leader of international Zionism when he, he's elected the chairman of the Provisional Executive Committee for General Zionist Affairs. Now, what that is, is, uh, you know, the headquarters of the international Zionist movement in Berlin gets moved out of there because there's a war. And so very much like World War II, right? In the 30s, with the the emergency committee in aid of foreign scholars, same thing happens 20 years earlier with this provisional executive committee for general Zionist affairs. They move international Zionism to New York and name Brandeis the chairman of it. So you can go forward now saying that Brandeis was the head of international Zionism until about 1921 when him and Chaim Weizmann have a big uh debate and they break and brandeis goes on his own with his own lieutenants and we'll get into those guys now excellent but he's far more influential than weitzman and herzl and everybody else it's unbelievable so in march of 1915 brandeis along with stephen weiss and julian mack would establish the jewish congress organization committee and in 1917 two months after america enters the First World War, Brandeis was elected honorary chair of the National Executive Committee that was the precursor to the American Jewish Congress. So he's got his hands in everywhere. He's, when you think about it, he's he's exactly what Chaim Weizmann wants. This is why Weizmann kisses his hand, is because he wants American support, especially the rich Jew support. And so, and, the you know, the American president, of course. And so Brandeis has both in his back pocket. And this is why Brandeis is so important. So they, him and his lieutenants willingly involved themselves in many other lesser known, but no less important Jewish organizations like the Jewish Agricultural Experiment Station. Now that's, that's developing uh, agriculture in, in Palestine. So they're establishing the infrastructure, the necessary infrastructure, the irrigation and all of those things. Mm. So, along with Mac Marshall, Schiff and Weiss were all members of this advisory board of the Hebrew sheltering and immigrant aid society. So you, you start to see how they're funding the uh, they're, they're accepting donations from three separate um, Jewish uh, demographics. And then they're just funneling it straight to Palestine and they're right. building infrastructure there. And so uh, it's really through this Palestine Cooperative Company Incorporated. It's run by Bernard Flexner and Robert Zold. Okay. <laughs> so the Flexner brothers, they're creating the medical industry at the same time. Wow. Right through the Rockefeller Medical Institute. And there's, you know, the Flexners are just like the Warburgs who are just like the Baruchs who are just like uh, the Rothschilds really in that, they have a father who has a bunch of sons and they go off and, and, and um, lead different movements in the same direction, but they're authorities of different things. And so you see that with the Flexners in that one is starting, you know, Western medicine. <laughs> yeah. And the other one's here creating Israel with the Supreme court justice. It's unreal. It's, I don't know why this is so obtuse, but like, it reminds me of the, uh, of, um, Maxwell, the Maxwell family, 
You know, you got yeah. like father in in Mossad, and then you got like one daughter involved with Epstein. You got another daughter involved with like tech, or two of them involved with tech. You know, it's yeah. just deep tech. These too. families, you know, going together like this. Yeah. And so I got tons of provenance too, tons of receipts I couldn't put into this presentation. And oh shit! As soon as he mentioned having more receipts that I can't put in there all is. of my presentations. So oh. if anybody's like, "Hey, I want to see more," just come find me. I'll I'll load you up because absolutely. There's tons. And One as we will continuously promote is bulletproofpub.com. Yeah. Go to bulletproofpub.com. Read read the articles yourself. See all the citations. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and the one thing that we've realized here is that this history isn't totally obscured. It's it's really wasn't that hard to find. It's just there. If if you know where to look and how to to do it, you'll find it. It's not like this information's been scrubbed from the internet. I I'm not sure if they just don't expect us to find it, or or what. I think but, that's it. I think it's the way we look at it, right? Because yeah. how many times have I had to stop us, just like for the general audience or even myself, sometimes to go, yeah, this is like meant to look really positive right because i'm you know it's sometimes at first it's hard to see like well wait this is all good things that they're no it's not, no no it's all the blanket of course as always you yeah. know what i mean so it's well, like the way the... it's presented has been in plain sight as everything usually is people might say oh they want us to, they need to tell us first some karmic thing yeah. that doesn't even have to be it it can be an ego thing they're telling us because they're confident that we'll you know, we'll be brainwashed by the time we find it and be applauding it. Yeah. And so, you know, we find stuff like this. This is a picture of the Palestine Economic Corporation, which is what this Robert Zold Flexner company turns into. And then with the, uh, it's a, with the executive relief aspect. So that's two parts of this, overall corporation meeting at this table now brandeis was the head of both of these but he's not in the picture and i like to say that he was the one taking the picture but there's no way that that's happening oh man he's the only one really missing here right but i'll show you here as we go that he writes a letter to the to the guy with the big mustache that's a warburg uh definitely he, a warburg right there yeah. definitely and he steps <clears throat> down uh from his zionist connections from this this um joint distribution committee and and the rest of his zionist affairs he goes kind of underground because he's the supreme court justice now and he he waits until it's uh it's a few months after he's confirmed that he writes a letter to warburg stating that he's got to drop all of his his titles to do with zionism but it's all of these guys here his lieutenants are the ones that carry out all of the work and it's all Brandeisian designed and they all admit it. And I'll show you now what's interesting about this picture is that this is a real one and this is a painting of it. And because Louis Marshall, the guy on the far left there wasn't at this meeting, they decided they were going to make a painting and put him in there. But there's also interesting. A, an interesting addition of a globe and another guy standing onto the left and the guy that was up front in Louis Marshall's spot is now way in the back. You can see him in the, with the beard. And then that's a picture of Lincoln, I think, on the wall. Okay, so that's important too because this, is, this all goes back through these guys, this progressive movement. You know, we've talked about being even a, a part of Manifest Destiny, right? Mm. 
So this goes way back through, you know, Lincoln's time and further back even than that. But I just found it interesting that they've, they put a picture of Lincoln on the wall. Yeah. They changed a few key aspects. Of yeah. This. And why Clearly the globe? very important picture. Yeah. That's very interesting. We could analyze that for yeah. days. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we could analyze every part of the table. <laughs> so yeah, we have Jacob Schiff on the right and Warburg on the left. And then Louis Marshall in the left corner. Uh, these guys are huge names. You know, Jacob Schiff mm. is probably the face of American Jewry or, you know, New York Jewry for sure. High mm. finance. Yeah. Yeah, he's mm -hmm. funding Trotsky. Federal Reserve. That's a serious piece of business, Matt. Yeah, that's a big picture right there. Yeah, Power. and and Brandeis is telling them all what to do. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's something to think so, about. So now we all know about Schiff and we know about Warburg, but, you know, Brandeis is leading them all. In You know, he's leading the international Zionist movement in the name of Theodore Herzl. And so, you know, people think that Theodore Herzl's the the father of Zionism. It's actually not. It's a Christian evangelical dispensationalist. You know, William Eugene Blackstone, he wrote the 1891 Blackstone Memorial Petition. And he and this is going back to then. And he was talking about the pogroms that were going on in Central Europe. And he was really trying to get the attention of the American president at that time, uh, President Harrison. And he didn't pay it any attention. But Brandeis came across this document in 1916 and had him present it to Wilson. And this is a big part of why Israel is today. Wow. So that's unreal. July 10th, 1918 meeting of the joint distribution committee and the executives of the American Jewish relief committee, 52 William street, New York. So there's a list of the people that are there. So the JDC, the Joint Distribution Committee, distributed tens of millions to the early construction efforts in Palestine through the wartime donations of three distinct communities to supply capital and credit, assuming a credit structure where none had existed before. And its first perspective stated that the company recognized that the extension of credit facilities was a, a first vital necessity in Palestine and of the utmost consequence in its economic upbuilding. So credit, they needed to be able to give people credit so that they can build things there. So uh, nobody should be surprised with that, that it's Schiff and these guys doing that and they're lending money out at interest. Mm -hmm. At the same time, he's creating the Federal Reserve, which lends money to governments at interest. So you can see that they're just using the same design plan, but on larger and smaller scales. And as you uh, understand this more and more as we get into Later weeks, you'll see that this is really the creation of our social contract. Oh, my God. This is uh, as it's coming together. So the American Jewish Committee targeted for funds already settled. American Jews, while well, the Central Relief Committee looked to the new Jew, Jewish immigrant and the Union of Jewish Orthodox Congregations for funding. And the People's Relief Committee solicited Jewish labor and socialist groups like the Amalgamated Clothing Workers or the Federation of Jewish Farmers. So they're, they're, they've got three different uh, demographics that they're targeting, and they're appealing to each one of those in a different sort of way to get funding for the creation of Israel and Palestine. And so this is before, um, this will be before, during, and after the publication of the Balfour Declaration. 
So wow, Brandeis well, created unreal. the Palestine. Yeah. So he creates the Palestine Economic Corporation with Bernard Flexner, Julius Simon, Robert Zold. And actually, Robert Zold's wife is the one that creates uh, Haganah or Haggis Haganah. That's the female, the, the women's um, American Jewish organization. Okay, so we have women in here involved too. Yeah, uh, I noticed that in the picture. We had two or th yeah. I think two pr women. Mm -hmm. And so they, they create the Women's Zionist Organization of America to complement the real one or wow. the, the big one. And so within that corporation were formed the necessary institutions and utilities to begin establishing the necessary infrastructure for a, a working Jewish community in Palestine, the Central Bank of Cooperative Institutions in Palestine Limited, the Economic Board for Palestine of London, the Palestine Jewish Colonization Association, that's Rothschild, and Palestine Mortgage and Credit Bank Limited, the PEC, Working in conjunction with both Baron de Rothschild's PICA and the Jewish Agency, constructed modern methods of agriculture at a time when industry was largely non-existent in the area. The PEC grew their pioneering country in such fields as credit for agricultural and industrial enterprise, housing, provision, town planning, and water supply. So there's another Baron here too that's involved, Baron de Hirsch. And I'm not sure if I mentioned him, but the Jewish Agency is what he's involved in with Chaim Weitzman. So you have Brandeis and his group, the Brandeis group, running the um, Palestine Economic Corporation. And within that organization, you have, actually, it's not within those. This is a, another organization that combines with it. So it's a concerted effort with PICA, which is the Palestine-Israeli Colonization Association. So we're talking about colonization of Palestine. So if anybody's out there saying, oh, it wasn't called Palestine before, you know, some of these tropes that are going on die here, mm -hmm. right? We break that history here because we're showing that, you know, they called it Palestine when they, when they were, when they went over there, when Rothschild went there to colonize it, he called it Palestine. Right. It's just an old tired trope to de that deserves to die. And it is now, it right? To be because dead. it's bullshit. They went over there with the intent to to infiltrate, create a conclave, and we see the results 100 years later. There's no doubt because we have hindsight. What's unreal, too, so, just from just to, just to bring something in recently, I came across, not even looking for it, but I came across a, a quote from Woodrow Wilson all the way in 1919. I, what year are we at right now? We're not there yet. Yeah, we? Well, not, not there yet, but we're right, right there, 1917. And I'm sure I'll repeat this either later or maybe in a future episode, but I'll say it, I'll quote him right now uh, yep. from 1919. I am a most unhappy man. I have unwittingly ruined my country. A great industrial nation is now controlled by its system of credit. We are no longer a government by free opinion, no longer a government by conviction and the vote of the majority, but a government by the opinion and duress of a small group of dominant men. I wonder who he's talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ding, ding, and ding. So, you know, what's amazing, Andy, is that when I first started looking into this era, that was one thing that nobody could really source and, and find uh, receipts for it was just something that generally was said, you know. 
Mm-hmm. But but now we're showing how it actually happened. That that is true. That you know, Wilson was controlled by a, a secretive group, and you know this is really where the the deep state takeover was mm-hmm. in modern times. I mean, they were talking about it under Trump and all of that. But this is yeah. really this is really showing that this is the first time that you know Harvard scholars and intellects. Were, were the chosen advisors for a president over his own administration. And so in, you know, weeks eight, nine, and 10, we're going to talk about how that all turned international because the first four years of Brandeis was uh, domestic, right? right? Federal Reserve, the Federal Trade Commission, that was all domestic to, to create, to make America so it would fit with a international model is what I see. If they were going to make internationalism a thing and have America dominate the, the 20th century and be the leader there, they had to first make America uh, able to fit well with the international model. So that's right. what I see in the first four years. They got busy right after he was elected in 1912. They just started going for it. 1913, they made the Federal Reserve and the creation of the welfare state, like I said. So. And then they move on to the international side. And it, it really starts here, 1917, because this is when they, he's also creating the inquiry, the first ever experts to advise Woodrow Wilson at the Paris Peace Conference in 1919. They start collecting all of their information in 1917, right, at the same time. So he's got his hands in so many things. I, it, it's hard to even understand how he's doing it, you know? Yeah. He's, he's infiltrated so many circles of people at the same time, and he's manipulating them all in the same direction. And so <clears throat> through their various subsidiaries, the PEC facilitated growth through credit programs, loans for low-cost housing in rural and urban areas. The PEC was deeply involved in questions regarding the country's water supply, making significant contrib- contributions to the supply problem by implementing improved technical methods in the establishment of centralized and systematic irrigation plants. So there's, they're serious. Mm-hmm. And so here's the, a great quote, and that's why I made it larger. The colony had been carefully planned by PICA, that's Rothschild, in cooperation with the Palestine Economic Corporation, that's Brandeis, and the Jewish agency, that is Chaim Weizmann. Wow. So those are your three big faces of the creation of Israel, despite you know, what many will say. Right. And guy sneaks under the radar somehow, and he's done so for a hundred years. I find it just the most amazing thing. And, you know, I had my buddy, Doug McKenty from the shift suggest to me the other day, he's not the first one to say it. And this is something that I believe that we are ahead of our time here. And we're waiting for people to catch up because this is very significant information. This is really showing the source of everything that is confounding us today. And they've yeah. been very successful in keeping it quiet. The Belfort Declaration is really the only thing that gets passed around and hashtagged in a way, in in that sense, on social media, in alternative circles, when it comes to this uh, this point in time, this event. And yeah. uh, it's interesting how, yeah, I mean, that's a part of it, of course, but this is there's so much more to it that's just not discussed at all and as you've told me in the past that there's been points where people get near it and then don't go there and when you inform them 
communication mm-hmm. tends to stop. Yeah, I'm getting very, it's amazing. I've been putting out videos showing how suppressed I am on YouTube. I'm trying to contact an old neighbor of mine who happens to be, you know, a fairly large um, YouTube guy. Yeah. Uh, the ur- urban farmer, Curtis Stone. And, you know, you went there to support me and even your comments got deleted did you see that did they i did not i didn't yep. have a chance to go back and look yep and so i can't even really say anything and so i'm trying to get him to give me his email address or just to find me on facebook because then we can directly communicate but it's been i, just I could reach out to him too thing. independently and just say hey because yeah. i mean i'm interested in the <clears throat> stuff that he talks about anyway you know yep but, oh um, yeah and he's been a huge help for us right in in our urban farming He's mm-hmm. he was an inspiration too, but he's helped us in finding all kinds of things to help hey, real, us with. Real quick, just to I just wanted to address the live audience. First of mm-hmm. all, hi. I really appreciate you Hello, guys everybody. being here. This is our third live. This is my third live like ever. And we have 14 people watching. That's 14 nice. more than I expect. And I, I'm cool. so appreciative of that. Um, and big Welcome. shout out to Sea Truth for the uh, the super chat. I hope there's i don't even know what i'm supposed to do but hopefully that's (laughs) i don't even know but thank you and um shout out to everybody who's here um dustin wilson said and this this is my word guy he gets into all sorts of language stuff and this is etymology he was yeah absolutely and he was showing how uh brand means fire and ice me or uh, brand (laughs) ice so you got fire and ice and this is just such an interesting concept that just permeates everything so and look at that like just like israel israel yeah yeah <laughs> very interesting yeah. and so the last name there brandeis is important because they come from a place called brandeis on the elbe like the city's mm. named after them and what i right. found in other in my research is that there's a, a whole other family of brandeis in in um central the United States, uh, developing, doing things just kind of the same as Louis Brandeis. Really? And I, related I, I just haven't, not? I haven't had the time to connect them to see if they're related or not, but I would, I would assume that they are at this point because Brandeis, you know, it's a fairly unique name and it, they're named Brandeis because they come from this place in, in Bohemia called Brandeis on the Elbe, right on the river Elbe. So oh, man. Yeah. the pieces just get juicier and juicier, man. So here, after being nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court in 1916, Brandeis wrote to Felix Warburg at the New York offices of the American Jewish Relief Committee. I regret that I feel compelled to resign from the executive committee of the American Jewish Relief Committee. And of course, also from the Joint Distribution Committee. So there's he's saying right there, he's stepping down from the two groups that we have that picture of. To avoid negative public perception, yet Brandeis still very much wielded authority from behind the scenes with an invisible leadership. So there's sources there, but we do get to that page. So through his closest lieutenants, Julian W. Mack, Stephen Weiss, Bernard Flexner, Jacob DeHaas, Felix Frankfurter, and Robert Zold, here and after referred to as the Brandeis Group, this inner hardcore group were all American-educated, a majority being also American-born all were university educated, most were lawyers, and most of the lawyers had attended Harvard. A majority also became Zionists after 1914. So a lot of these guys, one thing that we're also showing, and we will show in the in the sociological jurisprudence one, it may be next week, 
is how everything comes from Prussia. And it's no Thank different here. Right? Yep. So there's so much history going on involving Prussia at the heart of it that yeah. you know, it's not talked about. Yeah, this is real key. And we'll start to delve into that when we start to talk law because the founders of sociology come back from uh, Prussian universities. Because at this time, America, you know, it has universities and, and colleges and, and places of education, but not this kind of specialized uh, intelligence. Mm-hmm. So the only place it's being offered is in Prussia. And we're seeing not just the uh, founders of sociology, but the founders of psychology, the, the founders of psychiatry, the, the, fa- the very founders of our whole entire Western education system. They go over to Prussia. They study at Leipzig under um, some huge names in philosophy and then come back with, with that school of thought and impose it into America. And again, I know I've mentioned it before. I don't know if it was in this series or not, but it's just very convenient that this is the same source that was um, destroyed or in in pure opposition to what eventually becomes the Thule Society. But it, right. it wasn't called the Thule Society way back then. This is right. we've discussed this 1806, a very interesting year. Yes. Um, and we can dig. We'll di- we will be digging into this further as, we, as yeah. the series continues. Yeah, because that's the Prussian Reformation, 1806. Bingo. That, and it's that's also when they the totally... first inception of this Thule Society that was yeah. in opposition to all of that, I think. And uh, as it's an answer very interesting. To... As an answer to being beat by Napoleon, they totally reform every aspect of their government. Well, their entire country, everything, mm-hmm. military, education, all of it. And then all of that comes over to America. I kid you not. And Quite funny that we have a major motion picture from Holly Weird, a knighted director, of course, doing Napoleon recently. Right. I haven't exactly. seen it, and I don't really think there's going to be much to be gained there other than... well. You- and you see what the mainstream is contemplating right now about that movie because he always has his hand hidden. And so they have raised this question, why is Napoleon's hand always hidden? And so they contemplate whether it was a, a hand abnormality or some sort of thing that happened in war. And it's like, <laughs> he's hiding it because he's a Freemason. Right. And he's sending a message through Come on. the imagery, man. Come on. I think no it's worth two. It. I think it's worth two just to note. <clears throat> the Frankfurter yep. connection there with yes. Zionism. So we're seeing the the crossover and the connections between Marxism and Zionism, right? Yep. So uh, I think it's just worth pointing that out for the audience as sometimes, you know, we get new viewers and things like that. So Felix Frankfurter, huge name, the Frankfurt School. Yeah. Um, well, that's not thought. him. Frankfurt, Felix Frankfurter is the, he's the, protege for louis brandeis frankfurt school is not named after him okay okay but okay. he is what he does is carry on the brandeisian school of thought he because you know he's a lot younger than brandeis so you mm-hmm. see him actually um following brandeis's footsteps and this is you know felix frankfurter if you want to know about the creation of israel he's another figure that's you know um, very obscure 
and should be enjoying a little bit more publicity about his involvement in the creation of Israel for certain, because, you know, he had his toe in every delegation in Paris and creating that thing. It's very influential. And he's pushing forward the Brandeisian idea after, you know, because Brandeis is a Supreme Court justice and and he's already looked at as radical. So he knows that he has to kind of stay, keep low and out of the public eye. And so Frankfurt is the perfect guy. He's his, he's his leading lieutenant. His little puppet. Our friend but, Brandy says, looks like the Talpiet programs follow the same educational funnel. And then old Omerchu says, they, the Tavistock gang started in Prussia. And that's a really good point. Right. And Tavistock is totally connected to the cybernetic movement in America. Like direct Bingo. connect. So we're talking about social science and the study of human beings when we're talking about cybernetics and Tavistock, and this is the origins of it right here. Bingo. These are the guys that these are the first ever social scientists. This is this comes from from Prussia. Social science. This is uh, August Comte is the the father of uh, sociology. This is where it comes from, and and sociology was the first social science. So. And what is social science, but the study of the human being Bingo. in every aspect. So when you want to know, and this is what led us to all of this, because I was looking at a thing like the council on foreign relations and going, this is pretty harmful to us having lobbyists that are able to make legislative changes on the power of money. This should probably be something we should look into the origins of and sure shit. Here we are. This is what we uncover when we go look at the, CD origins of a organization like the council on foreign relations, you know? And so. Bro- oh, you mentioned you, <laughs> the CFR gets mentioned and Dwayne is He's immediately, one guy that I is. only figured out. <laughs> sorry. You mentioned the CFR and <laughs> you, got, you got cut for a second, but no, it must be just a coincidence. I think you're here. You're back. Hello, check, check, one, two, testing. <laughs> check, check, check. Are we there? Okay. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I'll just keep going. Sure, plow through. Um, so, I already explained how he stepped down. So, there's a source there. If you want to chase that, it's number 11 at the bottom. So, that's not just me writing it. Mm-hmm. And then source 12, as head of the American Zionist movement, Brandeis did not and could not act alone, especially after his nomination to the su- Supreme Court in 1916, when for technical reasons, as well as matters of principle, like this man is made of principles, his personal participation in the movement was limited. So you can see it's just a front. Yeah. He's still running international Zionism from 1914 to 1921, hands down. So the Brandeis group led the American Zionist movement and made the major decisions always in contact with Brandeis. Now, these are legitimate sources. These will be his biographers and and dissertations written in higher levels of education, mm-hmm. because this is where they will actually reveal a lot of this history is in, you know, the dissertations for Master of Arts degrees. This is unreal. This flyer on the left here, the yeah. ends of the Zionist movement, right. you know, this is... Uh, so this is 1915 and how, how many years previous was he just simply saying, Oh, I sympathize with these Zionists. And it's suddenly yep. he is, he, he he's overnight. This big lecture. Yeah, man. Literally, big literally lecture. overnight. Mm-hmm. And so that was a great 
receipt, right? It yeah. shows that he's out there and, and he's doing all kinds of speeches. This is just one, but it shows it's got the date and, you know, his title, Chairman of the Executive Committee for General Zionist Affairs. You know, that's international Zionism. That's These are your scientific like, managers yeah, of, of you know, the world right now. Yes. So it couldn't be more relevant actually today, right? Absolutely. If we knew our history, we wouldn't be repeating it certainly right now. So through his associates, Brandeis held the Zionist organization in a tight grip. From Louis Brandeis around World War I to Abba Hillel Silver after World War II, Zionism has been defined as a form of American liberalism. Now, here's a real great twist in all of this. And it's, it's something that once you wrap your head around, you can really start to see that they're going after dual loyalty. So we talked about this in our messenger chat earlier today of dual loyalty and how this is uh, a necessary tool in getting, you know, American Christians and, and Americans to support I don't even want to interrupt. He'll be back in a second. <laughs> Hopefully. Again, shout out to everybody here. Keep the comments coming. Man, Dwayne got hit hard this time, I guess. I don't know. Could be his internet. Andy, I still got you, right? Yes, sir. Cool, cool. What do you think so far? Well, we don't have <clears throat> Dwayne. Uh, very <clears throat> thorough. Interesting. Um, Again, nothing surprising, really. Just no, inform informative and all. confirmation. It's been a lot of... I mean, this particular episode is um, right in line. I've been digging into Jewish thought, Judaism... Um, you know, given everything that's front and center right now with the Israel-Palestine conflict and everything. And mm -hmm. I've been watching and <clears throat> paying attention to <clears throat> Adam Green and um, a couple other people that are exposing Zionism and Judaism. Um, and it's so deep, dude. Like... <laughs> Yeah, it's it's not just like this political goal um, of some of these very influential people like Brandeis and Herzl. And there's all these Kabbalists in the background as well that have these just insane uh, beliefs, um, insane goals, these messianic goals to bring forth the Moshiach. And um, a lot of their literature gets into... Like, you know, a lot of a lot of praise going around right now for like these um, anti-Zionist Orthodox Jews and stuff. And mm -hmm. you start to learn about what they believe and mm. you see that it's even more extreme than the Zionists. Right. And um, <clears throat> I had a little video clip to I don't know if we can work that in at some point, but it's um, the anti-Zionist orthodox jews the the really devoted ones they're they're way 
more insane in their beliefs and what their goals are than what the Zionists actually believe, mm-hmm. like the secular Zionists. And I've been learning a lot about that recently. And so, yeah, Dwayne's work here is just putting some more pieces to the puzzle. And um, yeah, absolutely. It's Am I incredible back? work. Yeah, you're you back. are. You're fucking <laughs> sorry. I didn't acknowledge. Okay. Yeah, you just no, got I'm back probably. about 10 seconds ago. You got kicked. Okay. Yeah, real bad. <laughs> Start. You were about to say uh, dual loyalty. We you got yeah, there. Really, just about to talk about dual loyalty. And so you were about to say Christians. To... <laughs> uh, okay. How do we get Christians, American yeah, Christians, American to... liberalism? Right. Yep. So we've been yeah. really uh, hitting. We've been getting kicked every time uh, you mention something interesting. So yeah, um, I don't know what to tell you, but there's a pattern forming. <laughs> there is a pattern going on for quite a while with me. <laughs> you know and when when i record them on youtube and show that my my uh comments are being erased it's you know it's pretty, it's pretty demonstrable and it's so fast too i mean i think this is this is a whole different discussion of course but i think it's ai i, I don't think it's people sitting there policing right. everything you know right. this ai that's yeah. much more advanced than we're told Right. I think a lot of that psyop that, oh, we just hit this. We just hit this. Nah, that was a long time ago. But regardless, right. that's a totally mm. different road. Let's continue this. Yeah. This is very important. Okay. Beautiful, beautiful. So I read that quote there, Louis Brandeis, around World War One mm-hmm. To Abba Hillel Silver after World War II, Zionism has been defined as a form of American liberalism. This is how they created the dual loyalty. Should probably not say those things. Am I still here? Check, check, one, two. Yep, still here. You're still here. So, and this we'll get huge. into that. So I'm just going to read because we do hit on all of this stuff as we go. Okay. So Balfour met with Brandeis on at least two occasions during his Washington visit. So Balfour, as soon as America announces its involvement in the war in early April, well, Balfour, the foreign minister of the British government, hops on a boat and comes over he's here within two weeks and so he wants to meet america the american president and start to show them let them in on a lot of the secret treaties from their imperial past because they're colonizing territories around the world there's all kinds of secret packs and all kinds of things that they had to you know pass on to the Americans before they went to Paris. So that's why he comes. And so he actually searches out Brandeis, particularly Balfour mm-hmm. does. And so I say here, a large stack of contemporary scholarship concurs is substantiated above by Ben Halpern, who's a professor of Near East Studies at Brandeis University itself, that these meetings between Brandeis and Balfour were critical and served as a major coming together of Anglo-American relations. Brandeis and Balfour were careful not to debate first rights to self-determination between the Jew and the Arab on numerical grounds, as the Hebrew then as now grossly outnumbered in the region by his fellow Arab Semite. This centuries-old tradition of calling anyone critical of Israel or Zionism anti-Semitic a tired misnomer in that there are over 70 languages associated on the Semitic branch, the largest spoken language, Arabic, Amharic, Tigrinya, and then Hebrew. So this is another trope that needs to go off and die, that we're being anti-Semitic when we're criticizing Israeli foreign policy or Dude, Jewish radicalism. Right? Aryans were Semitic. 
So that's how backwards and upside down and ignorant right. our concept of Semitic is. Right. The people and that so, want to exterminate the Semitic people are Semitic. So this it's a is, weapon. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Like you said, they're it all weapons. Yeah. <clears throat> but I mean, they're they're not going to let it go. No, nope. I mean, especially with what's going on now. They need that weapon. They yeah. especially, I mean, we're literally, we have the ability to see live in real time uh, a genocide taking place. You know, yes, I mean, they're, exactly. they're literally bombing women and children in hospitals and um, their religion calls for the killing of non-Jews. Um, yep. And they're using that term u.s politicians because of this thing called dual loyalty yeah it's all made possible because of dual loyalty they're they're literally passing bills that will criminalize people for questioning zionism for questioning right. uh, criticizing yeah. very specific jewish and we, we've talked about this in the past on this yeah. show mm -hmm. criticizing yeah. very specific jewish individuals not a whole yeah. entire race of people not a you know i mean yes attacking a belief system um, a religion that calls for, you know, the eradication of all Gentiles, of all Goyim, right? Um, and by criticizing the way, just, those things specifically. Just mm -hmm. to jump in, Andy, you're when you're talking about that specifically, you've told me in the past, and we haven't gone in too deep with it, and we may not yeah. be able to this episode, but um, you did say that that's beyond just the Talmud. Yes. That's the general consumption is, oh, it's just the, it's the Talmud. It's the Talmud, which is um, it's the Torah. Way. It's the first five right, books of the Old Testament. Yeah, which it's is it's really, in every really hotel room in the, in the world, basically. It's in every right. Western hotel room in the world. It's in every home hmm. in the United States, in South America. There's over 4 billion people that call themselves Abrahamists that, that call that religion, that faith, the truth, right? So, right. I mean, so you're talking it's not real, but it almost becomes real because so many people believe it like an egregore. Right. Yeah. So many people believe it. There are so many people um, that are basically self-fulfilling these prophecies mm -hmm. and they're using spin and narrative to say, oh, prophecies being fulfilled when they return yeah. to the state of Israel because it was in the book. Right. That they would return to the land right. of Israel. So then that gains more power and people gain, you know, they gain more power that way. And literally the whole book of Deuteronomy is totally eradicating all non-Jews. Mm -hmm. Amalek, right? Amalek right, in the Amalek. Bible. And we know yeah. Netanyahu has like he's referenced yeah, that. He's been right? referencing that recently. Yeah. Yeah. yeah in this yeah. recent conflict. And then it's like people act like nothing existed before October 7th. Like there wasn't an issue before October 7th or something. Yeah. Well, they're depending on the youth being the only ones watching these news channels too. Right. They only that really don't remember anything yeah. unless they're, unless they're good parents taught them history, which is a lesser and lesser mm -hmm. reality for these youth. Yeah. Well, and even their parents, they'll tell you that Israel was started in 1948. Right, exactly. One of people <laughs> that think it was October 7th. I've seen that meme out there. And so I've had to go on those threads and say it's 1917. It's been going on a long time. And a lot of the older people, too, are they're so um, heavily Christianized and yeah. um, evangelicalized. Yeah, exactly. So, so they're like 
true to their faith and they've, you know, Dwayne, you've often used the, the Schofield Bible, right. As an example mm -hmm. of like a, you've called it a subversion and yep. to some degree it is, but I've heard, uh, I've heard it put in a, on a bigger picture in a way that makes more sense to me that Christianity hasn't been subverted. Christianity is the subversion, right? Yep. There, sure. That like Christians and Jews are literally just two Jewish sects arguing over who the Messiah is. Right. Everything is, everything is, man. The more I got into that, um, right. That on the Lawrence Gardner work, um, that I was telling you guys about, I was even going to send Dwayne a, a book when I was finished reading it. And right. now I'm like, eh, maybe, I mean, <laughs> because not only do I find out that Lawrence was like, all of his writings were basically sanctioned and approved by the Royal family to be, mm. uh, part of their house of Windsor, um, esteemed, uh, you know, antiqui antiquaries group or whatever. Um, and he's knighted and all that. So it's like, right. it was all connected. And then I started to find out like, all right, it's just more praise for this messianic line. Yeah. It's just, you know, Lawrence Gardner basically says it wasn't Jesus that made it important. It was this bloodline that goes way, right. way back. And it's yeah. like, what's interesting is that from my other studies, I am finding that yes, these lines do go way, 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 way back. Absolutely back beyond what we're talking about, but it's twinged and sold to us in many different flavors, all being controlled narratives uh, yeah. from alternative uh, media sources all the way through to the, the mainstream and academics. So, yeah. And so going back to what Gerard said about uh, the use of anti-Semitic as a weapon, and that's mm -hmm. most certainly what they've been doing. And it's been going on for a long time, for well over 100 years. But the, I will say this about that. It is certainly a thinly veiled sort of attack, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't take much research to find out that it's sort of a faulty idea to use that word in the context that they are using it, you know? Right. That it's it's a, you know... It's not accurate. First of all, it's not an accurate definition of what anti-Semitic means. And if we were all to collectively sort of understand that, they would lose that ability to, you know, weaponize um, guilt, right? whatever it is that they're trying to do there. Mm -hmm. uh, just like if we, we know logical fallacy, they can't really fool us anymore because we understand the names and the methods and the ways that they try to lie. And the right. different types of lies that there are. Once we're sort of up to speed on all of that, you you can't actually fool us anymore. And so it's the same thing with this. So we we need to understand that you know it's a faulty idea. It's a and if we know that, we can just step right past it when somebody calls us an anti-Semite, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's seventy other Semitic languages on that branch. Oh, it's unreal. Yeah, and. Yeah, what we're finding more and more is that uh, these branches them come back using to that the existence root. of everybody else. You understand me? Sorry, you but you got. I think you oh. got cut off for a second, and yeah, right. We we only heard the ending of that. <laughs> yeah, so I'll just keep Sorry. going. Hell yeah, man! That <laughs> seems to work best. <laughs> so. 
So we got to the end of these branches. Yeah, Brandeis is also one of the earliest to actively promote dual loyalty between Israel and the United States through a shared nationalism. Mm. And it was very influential on uh, Balfour, wielding all the authority vested within him. Brandeis is an essential figure in the conception promotion, especially the consummation of the document most responsible for securing a final homeland for the Jew, the Balfour Declaration. So there's the letter to Warburg where he's stepping down from all his Zionist affairs. Mm-hmm. That's a picture of Balfour there. And so by the time Brandeis was confirmed U.S. Uh, Supreme Court Justice in the spring of 1916, he had been the leader of the American Zionist movement for two years already. He was a longtime intimate advisor to U.S. President Woodrow Wilson. As you would expect, Brandeis's words carried much weight in many circles. Brandeis inside a three-circle Venn diagram uniquely positioned to press for a Jewish homeland. And I talked about that earlier, just how he had the president in his in the palm of his hand, just yeah. as he had American Jewry. So here he states that it is social justice, which Zionism represents. And every bit of that is the American ideals of the 20th century. So he's the father of progressivism. And that's what he's talking about. The American ideals of the 20th century means, you know, Herbert Crowley wrote the promise of American life in 1910. And it inspired the entire progressive movement and the Bull Moose Party and all of this. And so that's what he's saying. And they're using social justice to get themselves a Jewish homeland in just the same way as they're pushing their progressive um, reform measures through America. You know, it's really interesting. I just thought I wasn't paying attention for a very long period of time in my life. And then suddenly came to know this term social justice but it's like this 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 term social justice was has only really been popular i can remember for the last like eight to ten maybe 15 years am i am i wrong here like in in a popular american way like hearing the term social justice warrior like you'd hear social justice probably in a very academic way but not in a very on everybody's fucking tongue all the time like it it became a popular thing probably in a very strategic point in time in the 20th century in the 21st century as well harkening back to all this but this is really you know the inspiration of the french revolutions and all of that right social justice yes this is what it's all about social equity strategic times yeah and so we hear it today this is you know, it's a, that's a great point too, because we want to relate our work to today because right. it's relevant. And, and so people can make connections a little bit easier when they understand what it looks like today. And that's, I didn't, that's I, yeah, I didn't know. hear about social justice warriors or, or social justice at all. We didn't have that term when I was in high school in the early, you know, 2000s, late 90s. I didn't have yeah. Facebook. Term. Facebook IPO'd what the same day that, uh, what was it? Uh, uh, life log. Life, life log. The same down. exact day. Same but exact that was day. 2004. Yeah. Right. So yeah. I would say it's just sort of not long after that, probably, Andy, because that it was popular. A lot of these problems that we're seeing mm. um, have sort of come about, these new problems that we've never thought about okay. or considered before. Right. So it's just so amazing and so revealing to see this quote in 2000 or 1916 that social justice was Zionism represents. It's like, okay, so you got to fast forward 
Yes. And like all these Zoomers and, and millennials need to like see this quote and go, oh, this term social justice that has popped up in our adult lives. You what know, it is interesting. It's it's going through the sentimental door of liberalism. They are pulling at our heartstrings, right? The same as they are today. And this allows them to move history forward in a dialectic form problem reaction solution so they you know the industrial revolution created the problem and the reform was going to be the answer and we are living in the synthesis of it today 100 years later and you know a lot of these guys say that there was no way that they could tell whether what they had done was was going to be beneficial or not because they were too close to the events but now we have 100 years and so i've staken my claim to all of this history and saying we've got a hundred years of hindsight, we understand um, the philosophies and the ideologies and the ideals that were moving people, and I think that you know we can we can be both the witness to and the final judgment on the decisions made a hundred years ago because we are the children of the future. We are the people that they were making these decisions for. So we can very easily look around and see a debt clock uh, in New York that doesn't stop. And, you know, it's in the trillions and it doesn't look like it's ever going to end, you know, and so we can start to look at the things like the federal reserve board and the federal trade commission and see how they've just grown into this giant monolithic surveillance mechanism, right. And well beyond its original intent and spirit. So, no, these are actually very easy things that we can point to now. And, and so instead of wanting to crash all of capitalism or the entire system, we know now uh, the institutions and organizations that uh, should be removed. And we can do it surgically because social science in general should in my opinion, should be removed because it it is really the source of all of this investigation on the human being. And it's really led to a lot of the, well, it led to the technocracy and, and now to AI singularity. This is where it all comes from. So we can, you know, a lot of times I say that we should go back to about 1911, 1910 and, and rethink all of this, but in classic progressive form, there's no time to ask questions. Save big on brunch for mom all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. So you can see that they've been able to push it through for 100 years. And it's the same thing with climate change. You know, it used to be called global warming, but now we just, it's crazy that we call it climate change, Mm. climate crisis. Now it's moved on to the word climate actually means changing. Right, 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 right. (laughs) So you have like change, change, like changing change. Like basically is what it, what it's the most ridiculous thing ever. Right. And you talk about another misnomer, another faulty idea. That's it. When they call us climate deniers for, for doubting that the government by taking more of our tax money is going to solve, you know, 
what it is that they're calling a climate crisis. I mean, it's right. ridiculous. And, and it, you know, it's very symbolic and it's, it's, it's analogous. It's, you know, relevant. And it shows that they push these narratives and they get people to believe crazy things. And, you know, I remember when I first woke up from that many years ago about climate change, and it took me a while to, to, you know, consider it even. I thought that people that were thinking it was just a government hoax were crazy. But you go look into it and you can see that the motivations are there. You look into the Club of Rome and where it all the, the entire idea comes from. And it's all just to create hive mind. It's trying to uh, create a collective state of fear in much the same way that I think they're trying to push the UFO and alien agenda today. It's just a giant collective fear mechanism. So, yeah, absolutely. A thousand percent, man. I agree. And that's stuff I cover on this channel quite often because it may seem like woo woo, but it's very intentionally that mm -hmm. way. You know, it's look at how well it worked for COVID. I mean, just yeah. scaring yeah. people into literally like not going and saying goodbye to the people they love in the hospital. Right. You know What's what I mean? Like, the... literally, people like isolated themselves and then died anyways you yeah. know like alone and and yep. i mean that's what fear does to people it, it just food. completely broke people's brains i mean mm. what's it, interesting yeah yeah what's interesting about <laughs> that is that like the difference between that group that was so eager to oblige and the ufo group is that the ufo group thinks that they're awake and the, you know what I mean? The, oh, the yeah. government. Yeah, we caught them too many times and now they're coming out with it. Like, right, yeah, right, right, that's right. what's going on. You sure, know, it's, sure. it's fucking hilarious. It's so, like the idea that it's been suppressed. Everything is intentional. And we're showing that right now. Like all this information that Dwayne is bringing forward, every time you've been on my show, it's showing, it's like watching a movie backwards, seeing the ending and going, oh my God, how did this yeah. happen? And yeah, that's a great analogy. See in the beginning, you're like, oh, oh, okay, this makes perfect sense. How yeah. this insane ending happens yeah. that made now it makes perfect sense. Yeah, it does. Right. It really Go locks ahead. everything together. <laughs> it answers a lot of questions. And yeah. so I want to take this moment because we're talking about fear, and we are seeing even conspiracy theorists, the conspiracy world, alternative media, even programs like T Lab or um, no more news, all of these, they're still creating fear by what they cover. If you're paying attention, you'll see that they're no real different than the mainstream in, the, in that they're trying to make people fearful of the future. And, and through my research, I've started to see that this pattern, whether real or not, really, you know, forbids people, prevents people from looking into things. Uh, so whether you're a conspiracy theorist fearing government tyranny or you're a Christian evangelical fearing the tribulation, you know, it's all fear of the future based. And so in conjunction with that, they want our attention. So as long as you're uh, paying attention to the wrong things, you're going to be in fear. So it's now easier for you through symptoms from evaluating your own symptoms, whether or not you are spending the, the 
your time in the right place. Because if you're filled with fear or, or anxiety, you are by definition fearful of the future. And so I don't think that you're ever going to be in a good productive place in your mind. If you're always fearful of the future, you have to, um, and this is why we've separated ourselves nearly entirely from the mainstream media, because we know that as long as we're paying attention to them, they've got us, you're hooked. And you can say that I'm just watching it to, to see what's going on and to watch their next moves, but that's just an excuse for your addiction. Mm, yeah, you know, yeah, because if you're paying attention, you're hooked. It's not about your ability to consider information there. If your eyeballs are on that TV, they got you and then they got us. So if you're really serious about winning, you want to pay attention to what you're paying attention to, you know? And so this is a real internal, you talk about go within to get out, Gerard, this is mm. it, right? You want to look in to see your own activities, step out of your body. And this is, this is about growing up and waking up is to see your own, res your own responsibility and how you are contributing to it. And that is one major way is where we pay our attention. Because yeah. attention is the new data, which was the new oil, remember? But it's now, it's as long as you're paying attention, they got you and they got us. So I'm really, this, you know, <laughs> I might be biased and this comes across a little bit uh, funny, but it's like the only place you really should be paying attention to is bulletproofpub.com or the, you know, the deep share <laughs> or go within to get out when we're talking yeah. about these things. And I'm not saying that because we're involved in it. I'm saying that on the power of this information, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's, it, I just remove myself from this and, and ask the viewer and the listener, how important and how pertinent is, pertinent is this information today to understand that a U.S. Supreme Court justice was the primary architect of Israel, right? This really helps you understand what's going on there today and to make right decisions when confronted with it. So you're not donating to Israel, you're staying out of this argument. And, and if you, you know, you want to be on the right side of history, you're protesting all of this um, Israeli foreign policy. Yeah, donate to us instead. Yeah, right? <laughs> go check out, uh, go check out Andy's page, go, go check out mine, go check out yeah. Dwayne's, go check out Chris Yannick from Rantcast, who helped us out with that February 4th, 2004 date. Uh, go check right. out Mario that's symbolic studies. Thanks for being here, man. Mario just said future shock. And it's, it's exactly that, man. It's like just an inability to process the future. And it's funny too, because I, I see that a lot in like people I've known that grew up in like crazy evangelical Christian families that were right. basically told you're going to, you, you better follow all of this perfectly or you're going to burn in hell forever and the end is coming and everyone you love wow. and you meet out in the world is going to be taken from you. Like, I know someone who I love very much who grew up like that. And well, you know, grew up future like that. shock right? that, that does to a person is awful, you know? Yeah. Well, Woodrow Wilson was a evangelical Presbyterian. Look and at his father Jesus broke Christ. the Presbyterian church into a North and South. His dad did. He was a significant figure in Presbyterianism is a, is a underlying uh, under talked about aspect to all of this is that a lot of Presbyterians are here. And so Presbyterianism isn't all that removed from evangelicalism. Right. Right. It's really not the two kind of go hand in hand. <sighs> so officially, the Balfour mission was to promote wartime cooperation, but Balfour's visit was primarily financial. And we've learned that through 
our research of the Paris Peace Conference. The true intentions of Balfour and the rest of his entourage, including the governor of the Bank of England, Walter Cunliffe, was to bring the Americans up to speed on the lucrative past of British imperialism. With the United States now a committed belligerent in the Great War, previous treaties and agreements made by the French and British in Italy, Africa, the Near East, and other areas around the world had to be laid on the table. And it is in this light we see the depth to Brandeis' influence. So there's Heim Weizmann. I didn't put his name there, but that's what Chaim Weitzman looks like, everybody. He's the one that's kissing Brandeis's hand at the end of this story. <laughs> so there's a poster, an actual poster from back in the day. And these are probably funded by Rothschild or one of these earlier groups that we were talking about. It's propaganda, right? Yeah. So Brandeis, the eminent insider, well, Chaim Weitzman was very much considered the outsider to Wilson's circle, where Weitzman struggled to get access even by repeated cable, Brandeis arrived as an invited and eminent guest, the sage advisor to all, is what they called him, where Weitzman, because of his personality, hit serious diplomatic roadblocks, the people's attorney smoothed political and personal tensions. So he brought people together. Well, Weitzman was kind of being a little bit radical, a little desperate. So clearly it is because of Brandeis's influence on the American Zionist movement and American Jewry in general groups whose blessings Weitzman desperately needed that Brandeis became an integral figure. Quote, the sage advisor to all. That's what Frankfurter called him, even more so than Weitzman in the final drafting of the declaration. So Brandeis's personal influence was doubly important for he combined the roles of a Jewish leader and a close advisor of President Wilson. When Balfour came to the United States to consult his new allies shortly after America entered the war, the new British foreign minister made a point of meeting Brandeis. All contemporaries agree in regarding these meetings as being critical in opening up the last phase of the negotiations for a British pro-Zionist policy declaration. So that's that was the the conclusion made was a, a British mandate to help support the Jewish homeland. And so that is from page 71, Brandeis and the Origins of the Balfour Declaration, Ben Halpern. So he's the professor we mentioned earlier from Brandeis University itself. So, you know, they're pretty close to primary source material. It's not still secondary, but, you know, we're talking about a, a professional expert in, you know, Jewish history from Brandeis University itself stating things that we are too so this is kind of what makes us bulletproof right and is, is it, he is in the context that he wrote it was it even slanderous he was just stating facts of the matter at the time or was it in the same context as we're kind of seeing it now he isn't laying all the blame at the feet of brandeis because he is sort of uh centric he's, he's thinking of zionism and and the origins of the balfour declaration he's not understanding scientific management mm. that he was in there affecting the taylor society he doesn't understand that he's affecting the evangelical christians through william eugene blackstone you know so he's this got is one really piece the of first the puzzle but yeah, yeah it's like compartmentalized just like uh, the inquiry were in Paris, they only knew what they were doing. And it was only when the, all of those parts came together that they saw the League of Nations and the Treaty of Versailles for what it was. And there was uproar. But up until right. then, they didn't know. Same thing here. This is unreal. 
So Weitzman launched a series of urgent pleas to his American contacts and to Brandeis in particular for their aid in a situation in which the future prospects of Zionism were critically involved. Weitzman pinned his hopes on Louis Brandeis as the person most capable of influencing President Wilson. And now that's documented historical fact that that's true. Wow. He's the closest personal advisor. And so we now, this is what I say about Colonel Edward Mandelhouse is that he's just a front too. And so we see people like Richard Grove at the Tragedy and Hope community and other historians always pointing to the Anglo-American establishment and Carol Quigley and all of these things. But we're showing that there's a, a deeper involvement than just Colonel Edward House. Now, you know, one of the first times I ever was on Tragedy and Hope community over a decade ago, they mentioned Colonel Edward Mandelhouse, and they're still talking about him. They will not go past him. They're not talking Brandeis and the Progressive Fathers. Now, either they have a giant rain shadow and they're ignorant of it, or they're, you know, purposely ignoring it. That's mm -hmm. the only two options you have now because I've confronted them. And so when somebody doesn't see the importance in this, they're either blind or, you know, not wanting to see. Well, again, we go back to that Woodrow Wilson quote from 1919 that like, I am a most unhappy man. Mm -hmm. I have and unwittingly he, ruined my country. Yeah. And there's another famous quote in the new freedom about that too. A book of which actually Wilson says in the first sentence of the introduction that he didn't write. So then you wonder who is writing all of this stuff. And we know Brandeis was, a major speechwriter. He was probably the primary Wilson speechwriter. I mean, he's the architect right. of the presidential campaign, his whole new freedom. Exactly. Or he'd have someone else do it because that's, that's right. the way these people yeah. are just like these social sciences and the social studies that have been carried out the study of the human being. We've done it to ourselves because we've been taking sociology classes for decades and decades, you know, in high schools and middle schools yeah. and things like that. We've been yeah. doing it to ourselves. Yeah. We just don't recognize it because we're not told. So when Balfour came to the United States to consult his new allies shortly after America entered the war, the new British foreign minister made a point of meeting Brandeis. All contemporaries agree in regarding these meetings as being critical in opening up the last phase of negotiations for a British pro-Zionist policy declaration. I think I just read that. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, it's, there's multiple sources, you know, we're substantiating all over the place uh, to the point where it's just documented history. We really don't, we, we don't feel the need for sourcing it other than the world just doesn't know it. Right. So we have well, to think, source yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. This is so important. I, I've never yeah. heard most of these quotes until talking to you guys, you know? Yeah. Well, we've gone deep into the books. We've gone deep into their own literature, their communications. And I think that's probably what's been lacking. Somebody with an intent to go in and find out what's really going on. Right. So, you know, they, they refer to all of this as some, someday in the future, a historian is going to come along and, and find this a unique uh, opportunity. And here mm -hmm. I am. And I'm Bingo. speaking claims a hundred <laughs> years later. So, you know, because we have the hindsight. This is why I'll keep repeating it. Hindsight is twenty twenty, and it allows us to really contemplate and consider and conclude. So uh, Balfour met with Brandeis on at least two occasions during his Washington visit. And I got the 7th and the 11th, but I've seen where they said the 10th too. But 
we all agree that there's two meetings at least. And a large stack of contemporary scholarship concurs as substantiated above by Ben Halpern, professor of Near East Studies at Brandeis. I'll say these things over and over, that these meetings between Brandeis and Balfour were critical and served as a major coming together of the Anglo-American relations, not just Anglo-American, but obviously, you know, they're going to create Israel. Right. And you can see the deeper you go that the war was actually created or, you know, facilitated a, a lot of this change. Without the war, I'm not sure we could have a progressive movement. So how intent how intent were they on creating the war to begin with? So I'd say pretty intent. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they were creating that on purpose <clears throat> and fomenting uh, you know, the British first, the British public into declaring war on Germany and then finally the Americans. This is where the quid pro quo is the famous, you know. I'll trade you this for that. That was the bayoneting babies uh, propaganda, right? It sounds uh, uh, sounds a lot like yeah. what we were hearing recently with the beheaded babies uh, coming out of Israel. Right. And- Is that what they're saying? See, if we knew yeah. the propaganda, we'd laugh at that. As- um, you know, so because- and that was like debunked within like moments. Um, right. But I mean... That that was World War One, right? The bayoneting the babies, the yep. Germans, the big bad Germans, and then that never went away. Well, until they completely obliterated the German reputation after yeah. World War Two. So, yeah, and so there's a beast of Berlin, right? Yeah, right. in World War One and World War Two, right? Just like there's a beast of Baghdad, yeah, under Bush in, in the late '80s. There you go. And what were they doing but bayoneting, bayoneting babies and all kinds of horrific claims were being made. And we've seen now, this isn't just our opinion, we've gone into the actual reports that, that inspired war. And they're, they're saying the same thing, that you know a lot of this is propaganda. And historians today are like, no, that is not a trustworthy document. But this is what the First World War was started on, mm-hmm. you know, the Bryce report. And it's all yeah. bullshit. It's all just total propaganda. Today, it's admitted that that's the case. But, you know, nobody knows these things. The headlines stay and people believe that wars happen for totally fictitious reasons. Right. So here's another important point. The Brandeis and Balfour were careful not to debate first rights to self-determination between the Jew and the Arab on numerical grounds because, you know, the Jew is greatly outnumbered there. So they had to look at it in a different way because everybody wanted self-determination in Paris, 1919. That's what the whole thing was about. So dual loyalty between the U.S. and Jewish homeland was very influential on Balfour, wielding all the authority vested within him. Brandeis, an essential figure. Oh, yeah, I've already read that too. So Balfour and Louis Brandeis, a Supreme Court justice, and the leading American Zionist came up with an ingenious solution. It was wrong to use mere numerical self-determination. A great many potential inhabitants of the Jewish home in Palestine still lived outside its borders or lived outside its borders. And Zionism said Balfour, be it right or wrong, good or bad is rooted in age long traditions in present needs, in future hopes of far profounder import than the desires and prejudices of the 700,000 Arabs at the time who now inhabit that ancient land. That's Balfour saying that, you know, they're avoiding the argument about being outnumbered there. And that's really what's helped 
the whole anti-Semitic trope to live a long life. Right. So the many drafts of the Belfort Dec Declaration were made in London and passed back and forth between the British and American War Office channels, and Brandeis was central to its draft. And we've got documents here showing that, and, and so this is from the British foreign policy papers from their, from their archives, that the draft cabled from government to government was handed to the Brandeis regime for its approval. After a most necessary revision, President Wilson acting through Colonel House, who was in full sympathy with the Zionist aims, authorized cabling to the British government the version that was published of the Balfour Declaration and to which all the Allied governments in turn gave their approval. So that is showing that Brandeis, it wasn't going to go forward without approval from the Brandeis group. Okay, this so is there's all our... proving to be so, like, just, yeah. <laughs> yep, so there's our source sources a list of our sources you can go look at those but yep i would i i've been saying now for a month that it's a u.s supreme court justice that created israel and you know if you're if you want to know how this looks today i would say that andy gerard this is probably a good time to share that diagram that you had earlier today about you know what where dual loyalty has gotten us this idea of dual loyalty yeah I'm, pull <clears throat> I'm pulling it up now and how that has enabled like you said earlier a genocide because i really do believe that that's what is going on and so what what is that i that first idea of dual loyalty what has that led to we're talking about 100 years and how hindsight's important and it can be 2020 2020 well there you go so you see the screen Yes. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, just just a few of the positions here. Um, some of the audience will be very familiar. Some might not be familiar at all. <clears throat> um, you're talking the biggest banker of the land, secretary of the treasury, Janet Yellen, <laughs> dual citizen with Israel and the U.S. Attorney general, biggest lawyer in the land, Merrick Garland. And if I can under interrupt for one second, yeah, this is course. a large part of the administrative state that Brandeis built. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. He set the groundwork and the foundation for this to be okay. Yep. Um, and I mean, you, you guys might've seen that meme going around recently, but you have a secretary of state there. So you have the number one diplomat in the U S a yep. dual citizen yep. making his tour, making his rounds, trying to run cover for what Israel's doing right now to the Palestinians. And he went and said that we can strategically fight two wars, one in the Ukraine and one in yeah, Israel, if right. it goes that way. And then the biggest banker in the land, also a dual citizen with the U.S. and Israel, Janet Yellen, says we can afford it. Right. So we have the yeah, number one diplomat. Money. <laughs> we have the number one diplomat saying that we can, like, strategically and, like, yeah. you know, from a from a power perspective, fight these wars, these two different wars, and then she says we can afford it. Now, right? I'm, you know, what I want to say there too, Andy, is that this idea of two wars at the same time, this comes straight <laughs> out of PNAC, the project for right, the right. century, yeah. because. You think about, you know, geopolitical warfare, 
to take care of all of the superpowers, you'd have to have a pretty big military. And this is one of the things that they considered about the project for a new American century is that they had to build a military big enough to fight two wars at the same time. So you can see that this was the idea. And when you look at the origins of PNAC, you go back to that famous quote from whoever it was, I can't remember his name, where he's saying that they're going to go after seven countries in five years. Clark, Richard, I think Richard Clark or something like that. General Clark. The famous quote where he's, they're Syria, talking about the, Libya, right after 9-11. Iraq. Yeah. Yeah. And what is what have they done? So here again is a exactly, great example exactly of hindsight. That. 2020, exactly man. That. I mean, then you got right here, Office of Science and Technology Policy. So there you got you go. science and tech, yeah, uh, yeah. Jewish, Beautiful. dual citizen, Secretary yeah. of State for Political Affairs, Deputy Secretary of State, Secretary of Homeland Security, Director of National Intelligence, Director of the CIA. Dual citizen. I did not know this. I mean, this is a small list. The list I sent you yeah. earlier is way bigger, but I yeah. can't. I can't yeah, get it a, to focus. So there's it's a great to video say going a... around too of a guy like going into like uh, public state houses and things like that and reading off lists like this with right. the dual citizenship, and it's pretty impressive. And everyone, of course. They Dude, just rolled a, their eyes. There's a know. video recent. There's a video recently that just came out of uh, Mayorkas. So Secretary of Homeland Security, oh, they're grill. Yes. They're grilling him about his border policies. And you know what he said? He said, "I'm the child of a Holocaust survivor." He that was te- yeah, he basically he teared said. up. You it can was find ridiculous. The clip. You he. Can find the clip. We, I, I don't even know if I want to justify it by p- putting his face on my podcast, oh, other than insane. where it is right here on the left. But like, y- yeah, right here, he teared up. Guy. He basically teared up like an actor would, and it was just absolutely disgusting watching him do it. He knew exactly what he was doing, and I feel as though watching the the other guy that was you know attacking him, the whole, the look on his face was like, I yeah. can't, I can't say shit. I can't, I cannot, I absolutely can't fight him on this because of what I'll look like to half the people in the room. Right. I mean, what power to, to be able to just pull that card and just shut down, um, you know, a conversation. I mean, these are people that hold public office, right? Yeah. We, we didn't, uh, we didn't appoint them. We didn't elect them. I don't vote anyways, because it's insane. Yeah. But, but I mean, we're part of, we're part of the problem, Andy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I can't complain. I have no right to complain because I didn't vote. I, I always, you know, mm. that that really makes me like giggle now because I'm like, wait a minute, you voted for this. You can't yeah. complain. Yes, yeah, exactly. You it's voted. So inverted. It's so inverted. You said well, that, like, yeah, you, you comply. Tyrants rule you. Then. Yeah. You said the government could come to my house and steal. 50 over 50 percent of my income you said that i didn't say that. it's like someone showed up at your house and went oh my god you gotta buy volcano insurance and we're like we don't have volcanoes <laughs> around here like dude you gotta get it and then like everybody else buys it they're like dude why didn't you buy your volcano insurance like i yeah. just want to opt out of this whole situation yeah. like what are you guys talking and, about and what is insurance <laughs> but speculation right exactly That's another key <laughs> aspect so uh and who, who enables them but the voter? To, Bingo. Right? Who complies allows going. it by they voting? This, <clears throat> this, uh, yeah, this, uh, the, you allow this to continue. And there's no yeah, other way fault. around that. 
it's another faulty trope. Yeah. Look so, at that. Look at that. Look at that, that uh, comment section. We got a lot hey, of people. Hey, right on, right on. Everybody's... Still got 18. Still got 18 people nice. watching. Hell yeah. Thank you Appreciate so much that. for everybody checking this out and, and being here. If you're here for the first time or the third time, thank you so much. Or the you know 150th time. What is the <laughs> chat? What, what, do, what do people in the chat think about, about this? I'm, I mean, I'm sure. Yeah, PNAC. Folks... Somebody's talking about PNAC there. Yeah, PNAC rebuilding America's Israeli defenses, government right? official. Yeah. yeah, see truth, dude. See truth is dropping some some bombs. Thank you, see truth. Uh, PNAC written by an Israeli government official and carried out yeah. on nine eleven. Yeah, there's two of them. Well, there's like eighteen signatories, but yeah, the two mm. lead ones. Yep. And, yeah, and yeah, most of those most of those representatives in PNAC were Jewish, right? Yeah. And then yeah. they yeah. went on. They were part of bush's uh cabinet right yep. and they were appointed during his presidency so mm -hmm. that reminds me i will pull up this quote uh one more time i just resent it to you guys for people in the chat since we're live mm -hmm. um this quote right here from marcus eli ravage he uh wait am i oh, sharing yeah. my screen am i sharing my screen still um i think so yeah there Can, it is yep okay. i see i see ravage, ravage yeah. yep okay century so Myrtle. century magazine century magazine this guy That's was the, oh, this guy was a rothschild biographer okay so he knew a few things about how <laughs> this group worked right he was very intimate um yep. he writes yep. this little uh pamphlet in century magazine called a real case against the jews is what it yeah. was called yeah. And of course, just like the protocols, right? This gets dismissed as complete satire. It was right. complete satire. I remember that. I right? remember he's anti-Semitic. Yeah. He's just he... anti-Semitic. Poof. <laughs> yeah. Well, Magic dust. he was <laughs> a proud right. Jew. This guy was a proud Jew, right? So, but he like completely, mm. I mean, it That's gets completely thing. written off as satire. But look at this quote. Look yeah. at this quote. It, I mean, if this doesn't say a lot, I mean, this really hits hard with some of the things that we've been talking about, a lot of the names and and things that Dwayne has just, you know, thoroughly documented. And what we just showed you as a cursory look into the Biden administration, which this has gone on for, you know, since the beginning, right? There's, Build it's back been, better. Exactly. Look at this Aggressive. quote. We yeah, are intruders. We are subverters. We have taken your natural world, your natural. ideals, your destiny, and played havoc with them. We have been at the bottom of not only the latest great war, but of every other major revolution in your history. We have brought discord great and confusion. Too. Yeah. We have brought discord and confusion and frustration into your personal and public life. We are still doing it. No one can tell how long we shall go on doing it. Who knows what great and glorious destiny might have been yours if we had left you alone? Uh, yeah, that's incredible. I mean, that right there, that's just <clears throat> a little snippet. That whole pamphlet, I suggest you go read that because it's like, it's more of that. He gets into Christianity, how like they created Christianity. Right. They, right, right, quote unquote. Right. The, yep, the sure. thing is, is Christianity like, is a Jewish creation to control theologically control mm, the Gentiles. It was yep. written in Greek, the Septuagint. It was mm. targeted to the Greeks. Um, they were being, you know, uh, completely um, subdued in 
Israel by the Romans and they couldn't take them over militarily. So they needed uh, the idea of a suffering Messiah, um, um, not a military Messiah, but a suffering Messiah. And that theologically conquered the Romans. And look what the, the religion ended up becoming. Yeah. It makes hey, so much more sense. Like they, they worship they, a Jew. Jesus was Jewish. <laughs> He's a yeah, rabbi. Right. He was circumcised. He, he went right. to synagogue. He kept the Sabbath. I mean, he's Jewish. It doesn't get it's, much more Jewish than that. Yeah, it doesn't get much yeah, more Jewish yeah, than that. No, no. Like whether he was real or not, too. That's not even that the point. Dude, I mean, 40 right, years you know? after is like the best evidence you got. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, like yeah, it's secular and and religious. And right. We've talked about this uh, and we can wrap it up if you guys want. But we talked about a this couple be- things before, Dwayne. Mm-hmm. How subversive is it? I mean, literally the doctrine, the Christian doctrine says, hate your brother, hate your father, hate your own life, sell all your possessions, love your enemy, turn the other cheek, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. That is a subversive, very subversive and convenient theology if you want to dominate and reign over a group of individuals. Hate your life. Yeah. Hate your mother, hate your father, love your enemy, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, obey authority, obey yeah. the government. That's and what also, the doctrine is. Also, yeah. allow allow me to kind of step it out again a few yeah. rungs on the perspective and, you know, focus on everything but yourself. And, you know, the hate your yes. life thing, hate your mm-hmm. hate your life thing. Like, yeah, look forward to the one afterwards. Now. Think about right. how prominent, like maybe maybe we call it atheism. It's just like non-Western religious belief in afterlife, basically, is what these people have. And it's like when you put that into context, it's like they being more atheistic than anything else have are the the source of the of all the mythology and the you know, talk about subversion, they they own the fear of death. They completely yeah. own the fear of death and they have, and this is even what I told you guys about box saga claims that this was when the first re legion happened was when the Torah was written. And that mm-hmm. might just be a coincidence, you know, but it just right. so happens that that's what they're talking about when these Western religions popped up in the way that they are and mythology was created in this way. This is, mm-hmm a very similar situation to what happened with the the Carolingian dynasty where suddenly our folklore uh became a thing in in uh in basically uh, a metaphoric way of talking about old parts of history that have been erased you know very interesting points from all over this i know i'm kind of jumping but it's, no, it's um, a beautiful point it's, it's just a, a constant point. theme that we see over and over again I'm just finding so many different uh, connections to it too. Like, yeah, I could just go on. Well, (laughs) it's a denial of history and history is important because if we learn from it, we'll no longer be condemned to repeat it. We've also been convinced that we, that it was nonsense to believe it was history, especially when it comes to mythology and things like that, to see it all as, as um, silly stories by primitive people mm-hmm. or, you know, it, it's, yeah, it's been completely subverted and inverted. And that's even gone on with 
legitimate historians too. Like even in, in the field that I'm in, people will consider this kind of hit. Well, how do you trust this history? Because history is told by the victors and all of that, but it's this information we're showing you exactly how like Charles Homer Haskins, the head of uh, one of the directors in the inquiry was the head of all curriculum to do with how history is taught in all secondary schools. Mm-hmm. And he's writing reports on exactly what we should be teaching kids. So he's, you know, he's, a, he's creating the memory hole. 1984 talks about the memory hole. And yeah. so we've actually uncovered how they literally did it. This is so uh, <clears throat> I should probably say this too, before, before we go to do with dual loyalty. Mm -hmm. And so the night before Brandeis gets elected to the executive, the provisional executive committee of general Zionist affairs, the night before he's elected to the head of international Zionism, he takes a boat ride uh, to Chicago. I think it's where it is. No, he wouldn't be taking a boat ride to Chicago. (laughs) I think it was New York. Anyways, the night before he he takes this boat ride. Yeah, he's coming from Boston to New York. That's what it is. And one of his closest confidants, uh, Horace W. Kalen, is with him. And this is the moment where Brandeis switches from uh, speaking derogatorily about hyphenated Americans, <clears throat> those people that have uh, come over to America but are still holding on to their traditions from Europe. He spoke derogatorily of those people saying that you should assimilate up until 1914 and this night before. And Horace W. Kalin is really the founding father of dual loyalty. It's him that comes up with the idea. And he suggests to Brandeis on this boat trip the night before that he really embraces, he should embrace this idea of dual loyalty. And it's actually necessary. He has to have... uh, the idea of dual loyalty because it's going to then allow Americans and American Jews to feel like they're, you know, they're, it's okay to support Israel. Whereas, you know, the belief up until then was assimilate. Even my family, when they came in the, in the forties, it was about assimilating and learning English and learning the traditions of, of Western world. And so this Horace Kalin, he's also at Harvard Okay, and, and Brandeis went to Harvard Law School. He had the highest uh, grade point average or score or whatever for 80 years there at Harvard Law School. And he, this is where he met Kalen. <clears throat> and mm. together, they form the Parashim out of the Menorah Society. Now, those are two secret society or two Zionist secret societies. And so those, uh, that's the two founders of those, primarily Kalen but also Brandeis. And uh, we've got provenance of all types showing lectures that they were taking, uh, speeches and, and pamphlets and things that Brandeis was writing uh, at these menorah society meetings at, and at the Parashim meetings. So they created this Zionist secret society that they've, I've seen some imply that it was like a, a guerrilla unit. Now, that's interesting to me because they're going over to colonize and you'd think that if you're going to go into a bee's nest like that, being who they were, that they were going to expect some sort of resistance. And so 
there's no way that they didn't think about agriculture and water and all of these things without thinking about protecting themselves. And this is, I mean, this is why the British mandate existed. And so this is where our research is going to go now. Just how influential is Brandeis? Is he like Cecil Rhodes and directing armies in this movement too? Because that's what Cecil Rhodes did in Africa. This is what the scramble for Africa was. This is what the Boer War was about. They were fighting over, you know, colonial possessions. And so I'm wondering now if Brandeis and Rothschild and these guys actually were ahead of some sort of guerrilla outfit that was, you know, providing muscle for them too. Yeah. So there they are. Coming straight out of Harvard. Right there. The, I, I actually had a video queued Pharisees, up. Pharisees, yep. Um, there it is right there. Parashim, um, Jewish disciples of the Vilna Gaon. And uh, the Vilna Gaon was uh, this Elijah ben Solomon Zalman, Lithuanian Jew, Here left Lithuania at the beginning of the 19th century to settle in the land of Israel. So like the idea of Zionism happened well before this too. Like oh, they, yeah. they started yep. settling in Israel some of these like more um, extreme Orthodox Kabbalistic um, Jews started settling in Israel, be- like in the, in the early 1800s. So like, that's one of the things where it's like, it's not just political Zionism. It's also these religious um, Zionists, um, these Kabbalists that were like working towards this for like a long time before, Um, sort of these manifestations of political Zionism kind of came about in the late 1800s. But um, I was telling Andy, when you cut earlier, we were just kind of discussing um, some of the anti-Zionist Jews that are getting all this credit in the media, even in uh, the alternative media, they get all this credit for resisting Zionism. But when you actually go and learn what they believe, like these anti-Zionists, they're, they're very orthodox. A lot of them are Kabbalistic. Um, they are way more intense in their beliefs of non-Jews, and they're way more messianic and fundamental than than even the, the rabid Zionists. Right. Um, they, they actually want these anti-Zionist Jews, they actually want the world to turn against Israel because it's part of prophecy. They want the whole world to turn against Israel, basically destroy almost like the entirety of the modern state of Israel. This is what the Orthodox, Mm. super, super Orthodox Kabbalistic Jews want. They want the entire world to turn on Israel so that's where you see this outward pride of resisting Zionism, right? Yep. Um, and then basically they want all of us, non-Jews and even the Jews in Israel to be killed and they will then usher in the messianic age right. and basically rule over the ashes. Like this is yep. their belief system. I have receipts to like back this up. You know what I'm saying? So right something cl- maybe big big claim is is that it's like it's not just the talmud as i no, said before like because that's what everybody no, the always... kabbalah the torah it's mm. it's you know what about it, the it's, zohar have you looked into the zohar it's it's the zohar so the zohar and the kabbalah are basically like that's this kabbalistic thought and that's right, where yeah. like because i lot agree of this with stuff the, comes from like it's interesting right. because a lot of ka- ka- 
Kabbalistic thought is very, you know, it's along those spiritual consciousness sort of lines where I'd be very curious, like we'd have to have a separate conversation sometime about that because I know that Andy, you and I have talked like the first time we ever did a podcast together was mostly just about like consciousness and expanding our minds and things like that, what we experience. And I'd be very curious. We, We should go over some of that, those Kabbalistic ideas and go, you know, I've always been curious to kind of look at it because I've heard a lot of things about Kabbalah and from Kabbalah. And I'm like, this feels like my brain. Like what? Right. It, like yeah. they, So it's <laughs> like I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing. It's more like it's just interesting that whoever wrote it had some sort of um, prominence over this data about consciousness and about the mind. And we're always saying how they're, you know, the people we're talking about now are social engineers and social scientists. They're psychologists mostly. And it's like, like you said, they're studying the human species. It just seems like they've been masters at it for thousands of years already as it is, which, um, you know, it's very interesting when we tie back to possible lost civilizations and we look at it like an underdog situation, don't we? Mm-hmm. Whoever we whoever we lost from this lost civilization is always like, oh, yeah, too bad for them. But what if it's the criminals just hiding their own crimes? Right. And so, you know, in that theme of just talking about the context of time and how long this has been going on, you know, in silent movies, one of the first movies ever done was Metropolis yeah. by, by Fritz Lang. And it people go and watch that movie. So it kind of wow. proves that even before movies had speaking, they were pushing this narrative because it shows all of the workers going into the mouth of the giant machine monster that they call Moshiach. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's man. like it's, wild. it's a wild movie, dude. And it's on also, Netflix. It's on Bernays own Netflix. So right. you can check it out there. And then the other thing I wanted to say too about uh, how long this has been going on in Israel. It, since at least 1882, the Rothschilds were creating uh, stuff there. Little mm. communities and the Yeshuv. This is the sort of the first settlements. Uh, so there's a chapter in, in the book, Two Rothschilds in the Land of Israel, which is one of our sources that shows one chapter called The Experiment, 1882 to 1887. And this is the first Rothschild influence there. So mm-hmm. it goes back, you know, decades, centuries. Yeah. yeah, quite a bit. And I think this road will take us eventually, whether it's in this series or a, a future series with more individuals, more pertinent individuals into different areas of research. Um, I want to connect it all the way back to, to when... Yeah. Israel, when that very important area of Israel uh, was called Sithopolis, you know, right. I'm interested being, in that too. Yeah, being yeah. a capital, being a capital Aryan city, and right. you know who th- I've always been really fascinated with the idea of the chosen ones versus this idea of the quote unquote superior race. It all mm-hmm. seems to be stemming back to the same ideology, and again, I say Aryan and Jewish, this, whatever you're saying, it's all Semitic. 
This is all coming from. Yeah, they're all, they're all coming right. from. It's irrelevant. They're all. It's all coming from. It's a family top. squabble, dude. It, we, dude, that's why I've always wanted to write a We're book. Part We're part of it. We're part of it. We're like in we, the yeah, middle. Yeah, we are. Right? We're absolutely part one way of it. or another. <laughs> We're the asshole cousins that are too aware of the situation at the yeah. fucking family reunion or something because okay, it's all try. from the Caucasus Mountains, man. It's Bob all and from Johnny these are people. warring again. Bob yeah. and Johnny, Uncle Bob and Uncle John are at war again. Yeah, <laughs> so, and so in in the final yeah. weeks of this, we're going to show how it went international. And the, you just said the Caucasus or the, the Caucasus the, mountains. Yeah. The Caucasus, yeah. The, the mountain ranges and all that area, Georgia and all of that. It's so yep. key to how, what they did, because that's the exact area that they drew all the new borders for central Europe was the Look key. That. That's what the Paris peace conference was all about. And so it's all the, the Lithuanian Polish border. It's the pale of settlement. It's all of it. So and so we'll many of my listeners later. who yeah many of my listeners who go on my deep dives with me about ancient 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 stuff like this whole Caucasus Mountains area is so important and so yep. pertinent because it's and they're still fighting it's, today. It's all the same people. They and set the borders a hundred years said, ago. A family squabble, and that is look, a look. really yeah. Look at this. Look at, yeah. look at the screen. Oh yeah, man! They were working together. Same, by the same, way, well, because the symbols the didn't final, mean the what final we're, solution. We're the sold final solution fiction. wasn't eradicating them from the no, earth. No, it was no. Zionism. Right. That's uh, what the final solution. Two sides actually, of the same coin. Looks like. Well, and the thing is, is people call <laughs> a lot of things Nazi propaganda that in completely other contexts uh, context will prove to be real through other means like i'm saying like i study really ancient territory and all this stuff is very new but it concludes it's the, it's the same fucking story it's all the same story the swastika yeah. has never been or never was a uh you know, they say it was like a Buddhist symbol. Yeah, it's only Buddhist because if you look at the description of who Buddha was, he was an Aryan. Like this is a northern symbol and so is the star. Those two triangles represent male and female. But those are just, just that's just one duality, but it right. represents many dualities. Right. Um, and the swastika has many meanings. And I've shown, I think it's on, my Instagram, but I could show it somewhere. I don't know where I could find it right off the top of my head, but I have a video of a very ancient tradition of the swastika being created when it has to do with uh, sulfur being lit on four ends of I logs. That. I saw that. And, you showed oh, yeah, you showed me that. It and when the, and when it the logs, when the sulfur lights up and goes flaring, it starts to spin and it creates that symbol and it creates that symbol and then it stops and then it starts yeah. to, the illusion makes it spin the other way. So yeah. we have so many different narratives like, well, this way is the right way, but then this other way is like the Nazi way. No, no, mm -hmm. no. Like none of that is true. All of mm -hmm. it's bullshit. And even Native American cultures have a swastika symbol and it's referred to as like the spinning logs. And the right. only tradition hey, hey. in the world with the spinning <laughs> logs is in finland and they right. say that because of the fucking barren land bridge that may have existed finnish people russian people uh 
these Native American people in the Southwest and the Northwest, it's they're all from a similar origin. If you look at the Kennebuck man, the Ken- Kennewick, Kennewick man, he's yeah. the oldest Native American we have. He's the oldest ancestor of our Native Americans, yet he is also the oldest Caucasian we've ever found. Mm. What? Right. So I'm sorry to ramble, but man, this is all connected, all of yeah. it, because it's all being subverted. It's all being hidden. And well, I, none of us have all the answers, but we're putting so many damn pieces together for for others out there. Hopefully, yes. hopefully the pieces, more of the pieces fall into place. You know, Dwayne, go ahead. Sorry. Well, some of our earlier work on Huxley, we identified yeah. this whole movement was to attack every aspect every form of Western society at the same time, not Mm -hmm. one at a time, but all at the same time. And so that, you know, we will often refer to the Stanford research Institute, changing images of man and how that was inspired by Huxley Mm -hmm. uh, to find all the ways to control uh, society. Well, we see them fulfilling all of that here. It's the same it's the same group of people because when you look at the League of Nations and when that was created, all of these people are all cohabitating. It's all together. The Huxleys, uh, yep. you know, and all these social engineers. I got so, some gravy. I got some gravy for yeah, you yeah. before we get out of here. So, yeah, yeah, hell yeah. This, this is from amazing. My, this was from my trip. Can you see this is in San Francisco. Here? See the picture? Yeah, you saw that in San Francisco. Man. Yeah, this is uh this is the Palace of Fine Arts. Oh, um, get out. I'm Look gonna show that. you one more. So this is and in San Francisco. Um in our time era, too. Incredible. This is right in our wheelhouse. This was built of this place. I don't know when it was built. I think it was built a lot longer. Um, this was supposedly um in place for the 1915 Panama Pacific. Um, international expo yeah so the, the world's fairs yeah and um, this was one of many 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 buildings incredible buildings that were yeah. part of this fair and this is where they were like showcasing free energy all kinds of like interesting tech they were yep. um <clears throat> so i got to go there you know i was just in yeah, the bay area um got to see yeah. this it was so incredible just the detail and they so that's what I wanted to show you, right? Without going, maybe some other time we can get in and, and do definitely, this, definitely would like. I want to show you this. I don't know. I, I check this picture out. We we're just talking about that symbol. So you're okay. saying that? Yeah, okay. So Go look ahead. at this. Look at the symbol. Okay. Yeah, so beautiful. the story is the story is that this structure was knocked down and rebuilt in like the '60s. Do you think they so these swastikas huh. are everywhere <laughs> littered throughout this structure? Do you think that like the designer would have featured like the redesign the and redesign. implementation and rebuild of this structure would have included that given what had just transpired? Right, less than twenty years before. So, you're, yeah, especially you, in the sixties, speculating yeah. here. I don't yeah. know, right? But uh, so you're I don't saying, think it was ever demolished. And you're saying that this shows that this structure is a lot older than they say it is. 
That's what I'm speculating. Okay. Yeah. And okay, that's interesting so now too, we because it's get... the only one. It's the only one that remained. Shout out it, to... it is. It's the only one that remained from the expo. Hey, everything um, else is gone. Shout but... out to uh, Casey from Golden Gate Starfort Command. Yeah, I'm he's the sure. one who like yeah, dude, inspired dude. me to go here and look at he, all By the way, shit. I did reach out to him. He was in Massachusetts um, while you were there, oh, really? unfortunately. Yeah, he was I in reached Boston. Out to him. I, I didn't, I I didn't even to get him. to see him, but shout out to Casey. I did talk Hell to yeah, him, shout out and to him. I am going to be getting him back on very soon. Uh, awesome. I think we actually set a date, so it's in the next couple of weeks. Andy, if you want to be there. Yeah, By have me on because I want to show some of these pictures. <laughs> I feel like we can, it's a good way to, you know, recreate Indra's web, if you will, yeah. if we want to stick to the mythology here, to kind of link this, this node. Shit, that, look at this shit. Gravy this is unreal. Audience. Oh, I mean, absolutely. Please, everybody take in the symbolism. Lions. There's lions everywhere. For those Please. that are listening, tune yeah, into YouTube. Come on. <laughs> someone on someone someone on YouTube said, How long has the Deep Share had a YouTube channel? I'm like, come on. I've been here pretty much since the beginning, actually. Look at how big video. that fucking thing is, Dwayne. Look at that. Yeah, that's shit. what surprised me. When you showed me that picture with you standing there, I was shocked on how big oh, it was. Oh yeah. Let me this pull place that is one massive. Too. Let me pull that one up. Right there, that one. I think the other yeah. one's better. This is, yeah. that is so and so huge. that's all pushing the this city one. beautiful movement too right those expos that you're talking about they're the they're happening the, in new york and they're they're pushing the city beautiful movement city beautiful yep right? that's what casey and turned me on to today yeah. a lot of our buildings I've, are like that i don't think i've actually heard that term look but, at um, the city, dude oh yeah so go back and listen to one of my early episodes with casey okay uh, okay about the city beautiful check out movement. this check out this landscape Unreal. though this, yeah, is, there a, you go. this is a panorama yeah. of the expo yeah. look at this so here's the palace right here what we we're just looking at right on the left side right. of the screen right here. City. here's the lagoon okay all this shit every last building is destroyed i think there's part of the um of this building which is like the um looks masonic I forget what they uh, what they call this uh, some type of transit station or whatever, but it doesn't look like this. It's and wild. the whole story of San Francisco makes no fucking sense. And I, I learned a lot of what I was learning God. about that from Casey at yeah. Golden Gate Starfort Command, and also another channel shout out. Um, I am Kairos K A I R O S. He does a bunch of work traveling around the bay area doing the same kind of thing really? as casey's doing nice just um, both on <laughs> man, dude this awesome. this place was oh my god dude like i just felt something there like just totally you know like, like being I'm not at the a palace mud guy i'm not into the mud flood thing but and i i think tartaria is very subversive as well but i do think that there's absolutely shit going on here <laughs> i think it's an interesting line of like 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 uh, Casey did a podcast where they were getting into this, like the destruction of San Francisco. And mm -hmm. like there was a, a quote unquote, a fire and an earthquake. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. like, look, that is an explosion. Absolutely. This was like in the late, like the early 1900s. Who gets a picture of that if it's not an explosion? You know, like and there's all these weird ass wow. pictures of people smiling. I got some some interesting ones here. Like this this whole area was burned in San Francisco. And um there's like 
Yeah, this picture. Look at this. So the whole fucking city's like basically being completely No, this was it like the the early like I think um let me see if I can find the panorama from it was 1878. There's a panorama. Hmm. Okay. Let me see. I have that in here too. But this is what the cities look like after. This is this yeah. looks like Nagasaki or some shit. Yeah, yeah, what the fuck? Look at that. That's not a fire in an earthquake, dude. That's like a firebombing. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's all like subjective. Dresden. It's, it's That's us. what I was saying. Yeah, Dresden or Nagasaki yeah. that basically look exactly like that. I mean, when we get some, you know, uh, engineers for 9-11 truth to like kind of take a look at this stuff or, you know, weapons experts that, you know, I want to, I, I, it's all speculation. And there's all know? these newspaper articles about it. And like, apparently the, the fire chief got sick or some shit. Um, let me see if I can find that panorama real quick. And then I gotta, I gotta head out and get some rest, but yeah, check this out. Call it soon anyway. Yeah. Let me see. Getting late what is for it you called? guys. 1878 panorama san francisco pretty sure that'll get me there thanks for the folks still hanging out live with us still got a good good group of people hanging out thank you right on um you know show show some support go check all of our pages out that's the one right there edward moy bridge Oof. so this is like Right, a composite. This is a 1878, and if like you zoom into this picture, you can see like all this. Like, I mean, the story was that 30 years prior to this, there was only a thousand people there in 1848. Then the gold rush, 1849. A few years later, there's 25,000 people. 30 years, a thousand people did this. Like a thousand people and a, a few more. But if you like zoom into the this picture, like they some of these buildings are just like fucking really interesting. Um, I mean, look look at how massive just the scale of it is. Now is that Alcatraz in the background? Yeah. No. Yeah, we keep seeing different angles That's of that. Out, it's man. So creepy. So interesting, though. This whole city, man. Like we're gonna have th- to meet in San Francisco, man. We'll rent Hell a, yeah. We'll get a motorhome and we'll. <laughs> yeah. a week in san francisco just driving around then we'll head to la there you I go bet, i bet documents uh, all california is the laboratory yeah so that's an interesting panorama i think there's there's much better ones than this out there but this is basically um kind of the the gist of it but like it makes you should no put something sense. together on san francisco andy because i think i, I think i, I might i think I we might. all know how much you know, history is there, especially with 60s counterculture. I know. Dude, yeah. And the, U- and the UN's formulated there. Yeah. All this shit. Yeah. Like, damn, well, Casey, Casey dropped some interesting bombs to me recently yeah, he, in a chat. He was like, oh, you awesome. know, if we're awesome. going to talk soon, I want to talk about this and this and about like the island of California type stuff. Right. And the island. Right, yeah. He's gotten, yeah. he's gotten a lot. And some of the photographs he's shown me, it's just like, it's made me like I've even asked him. I've been like, dude, is there any way that we're we're getting fucked with and this is AI, like AI art? <laughs> like, can we verify these pictures are real? It's like un unbelievable. You know, like the just leading to crazy possibilities of like 
how much of our Midwest was just dynamited. You know, right. Just, That's what I'm saying too. There's a lot like, of crazy stuff in there, but we've mm -hmm. gone pretty off the rails here. Yes, but, we have. <laughs> but but hey, not no disrespect to the off the rails because no, we this had is to, beautiful. And thank you, Andy, for showing us those pictures of your trip. That's uh, so. Yeah. I got so many more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll have to do more on it. And again, like we're gonna do a ten part series here. Where this was yep. episode three, you know. But that was gonna... just some bonus gravy for the people absolutely. hanging out. Yeah, yeah, right absolutely. On. <laughs> Dwayne, so the, do you have any? Next, yeah, go go ahead. So for next week, we're going to get into law, sociological Excellent. jurisprudence, and so this, this is, is really probably oof. even more influential on you than than this Zionist one, or you know, to me, it really helped put together a lot of things when I, when I understood how they affected law. This is going to bring up a lot of interesting. Sociology topics andy will you be able to join us next week too i hope yeah. excellent awesome. yeah nice cool, because cool. i feel like we've also you know just in our random conversations about conspiracies and stuff we've talked about black's law book and things like that and we've we've all been curious about like you know jordan maxwell what he says about the law of water and maybe you know maybe some of us more than others but all of this kind of i wonder how it's going to play in i'm going to have these ideas in my mind when we talk about law and jurisprudence because yeah. we know that they also control the counterculture and the narratives that a lot of us probably took his gospel from people charismatic leaders of the counterculture many many times not to say everybody's a fed but come on mm -hmm. we we know that this is how it works so you well know. they look at it they looked at law as the engine of social control now this is what really took me aback because i'd never really looked at law as social control but it's obviously the most powerful form of social control Right, they're creating yeah. laws to keep people from doing things that they don't want. Creates so mentality around every one of those little works. things. It yeah. works, dude. So you have it creates so, the mentality, creates personalities. So when you think about that title, sociological jurisprudence, that's law combining with sociology. So that's the study of the human being combining with the controlling of the human being. It just it blew my mind and led me to really understand Larkin Rose's video, the animated one and the Jones plantation movie yeah. make it analogous, not just to the state, but to the factory system of work and the labor union leader as the scientific expert between us and our labor. Right. Entering so wedge. that's our most powerful, most important possession is our own ability to work and make money. And so uh, I never really looked at that like the labor unions in that way before, but delving into the literature, this is how they looked at it. This is why a labor, the labor unions were created was to have the scientific expert entering wedge between us and our labor. So that's what we're going to get into. It's actually two-parter. We'll see if we can cover both, but it may go over two weeks just because it's so in depth. Yeah, I absolutely think we should um, hmm. take our time. So if we, you know, yes. plan to go hour, hour and a half tops, and then yep. definitely hold off on the part two for the next for the following week. You know, we yep. want to do our due diligence here, but obviously we're doing that. Uh, this has yep. been fantastic. This keeps cool, getting boys. good to see you again, Gerard. More interesting. Yeah, great to have great you to be here back with us with again, you Andy. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah, cool. great to and, be back. Uh, 
again, hey, thank you for the for all the 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 people coming on and joining us for this live, and yep, we'll cool. be here again Monday. Thanks for contributing too. Yeah, please, thank you. Um, spread the word. We're going to be doing this for the next six more episodes or seven more episodes. Yeah, yeah seven yeah. more episodes. Yeah, I think we'll call it at that. But um, okay. yeah, find Dwayne at bulletproofpub.com and find Andy. <laughs> I'm going to tag you in all your <laughs> socials and shit, and I'll get this up on the podcast. I figured Rise feed. of the Expert had to wear this shirt. COVID-19 right. vaccine yeah, makers exactly. are exempt from liability. Right. Don't do yeah. it. Yeah. This is not medical advice, but don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no experts here. <laughs> no, definitely not. <clears throat> All right, everybody. You guys seeking truth. Thanks, everybody. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. That's hysteria. Enough. I get the point. You meddle with the primal forces of nature. (laughs) And you will atone. What do we know? What do we know? If I know what we know, then I can tell you what we know. Someone else? No, okay. <laughs> Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.